I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Seen on Radio is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hey, people. It's John Bewin. Hope you're well, as we say, amidst all of it. So much happening. So much of it relevant to things we've explored on our show. I'm coming in here in this post-season five hiatus to introduce a summer mini-season of rebroadcasts. You could call it a few of my favorite things from the back catalog. Starting with some episodes from the early pre-seeing white era of Seen on Radio. Look, I can see the download numbers. I know a lot of y'all have never gone back and listened to what we now call season one. There are something like 30 episodes there, and there is some good stuff. I'm very happy to put this piece back in the feed so it can reach more ears. Stacia Brown is a writer and audio producer. She now lives here in Durham, North Carolina, but when I met her, she lived in Baltimore. Stacia and I were both part of a national locolore storytelling project in 2015. And the following year, I twisted her arm to come to an advanced audio workshop that I've led for years here at CDS. During that week-long course, Stacia made this extraordinary audio essay, and I asked her to work up a version for Seen on Radio. I don't say this kind of thing lightly. I listened again recently, and I thought, if there's a better piece of writing out there anywhere in audio essay form than this one, I haven't heard it. Stacia's piece refers to events that were fresh in 2016, a pair of very newsworthy deaths of black men in Minnesota. But the larger experiences she's reflecting on are, shamefully, just as relevant today. Don't worry. I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun. It depends on the mother, but some begin to lose themselves in the fleshy post-birth folds around their waist, in the feeling of excess blood decreasing and slowly recalibrating its flow, in adjusting to the less taxing burden of one body again instead of the heft of two. It depends on the mother, but for some, childbirth is beset with instability, the worry attendant to a partner's precarious presence now you see him texting in the delivery room. Now you don't, at three in the morning, beside the changing table, or hunched over the diaper pail. He is at once flesh and apparition, at once as essential to the braided DNA inside the baby, 
and as intangible as desert air. One too many complaints and he could slip away for good. One too many worries voiced and he will. He does. It depends on the mother, but at least one of us will will herself numb, regardless of whether the father ever returns to help her care for the child they both conceived. If he returns, she will betray nothing. They will transact, the child, the details, the money, if any, and he will become more business partner than best friend. He will become rook to her queen, merely two pieces on a board, trying not to take each other out. If he never returns, the old wounds callous quicker. In either case, soon, perhaps sooner than she's ready, she'll be able to imagine a life, a family, a more durable, enjoyable alliance with someone else. The thought will become a meditation, a light toward which she is determined to travel. Stay with me. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed, he's carried to, he's licensed to carry. The things we do not know about Diamond Reynolds are manifold. But we know she has a four-year-old daughter. And we know that she had a boyfriend. We cannot confirm how she chose him. But I can imagine. Philando. A name that sounds like a dance and could, when pronounced with a certain inflection, make castanets of a tongue. Paired with the surname Castile, a word reminiscent of the gentlest, most versatile of soaps, Philando likely seemed able to cleanse any sorrow. Philando may have seemed able to scrub away the residue and see what lay at her core. Calmness, strength, a desire for a far less complicated life. As if the fortune of his name were not enough, there was his profession, school cafeteria worker, a position he'd managed to hold for most of his adult life. It was not just the job, but the pride he took in it, not just the stability or the wage, but the care with which he fed the children who could not so easily afford it, the off-the-clock study it must have taken to differentiate which meals would aggravate which student's hidden allergies. These suggestions must have compelled her to believe that he could earn the privilege of proximity to her daughter. Castile, cleansing, simple, soothing. Philando, unusual and alluring because of it. It depends on the woman, but for some, simplicity is sexiest. It's the hand reached across the armrest to squeeze hers on a ride to pick up groceries that doesn't result in a routine traffic stop. A blanket tossed over a hill to watch the fireworks on the 4th of July. The intimate high of a joint passed to mark an occasion. A buzz passed and pulled between them like a lingering kiss. Simple, like the look he'd sometimes get in his eyes. Don't worry, it assured her. I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun.
That's right. Good morning, everyone. And we begin with the latest from Dallas, a city on alert after the deadliest attack on law enforcement since 9-11. Snipers opened fire on police who were on duty at a Black Lives Matter rally. 11 officers... A pall has been cast over our country. Beyond the reach of even our savviest astronauts, a dark and ominous sheet has been fastened into place, a great gulf fixed between heaven and earth. We can still be heard when we pray, but it's hard to believe that our voices are not distorted and muffled. We can no longer grieve in the ways to which we have become accustomed. The deaths come too quickly for adequate contemplation. The rhythm of walking steadies our pulse and reassures us that someone is always walking alongside us when we feel strong enough to join them and for us on the occasions when we do not. These are discordant years when disruption is disrupted by the rattle of even more bullets. Police shooting, another police shooting, this time in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. When officers who should have protected and served civilians are endangering the officers who are protecting civilians. And all who are bearing arms are endangering all who dare to take to the streets in hopes of regulating where and when arms can be born. We can no longer adequately enact the stations of loss. No one's role can be performed as written anymore. We are all exhausted of acting. Even the writers cannot keep a pace with their elegies. When I wrote this, it was to honor five slain Dallas officers. I ended it two days after four more officers were slaughtered in Baton Rouge and the civil rights lawyers on social media were warning activists to stay indoors as the public square increasingly became a shooting gallery and the protections generally offered to the civilly disobedient could no longer consistently be ensured. Perhaps we can outrun what's coming, but running clears the mind. Do it long enough and we all forget distance, impetus, and destination. Do it long enough and running becomes the only goal. I've wondered where Philando and Diamond were when they heard about Prince. Were they together? The news of his collapse alone in an elevator inside his own home. Did it wind them? This is where he recorded, this is where he lived, this is where he died. Did they hold on to each other until they caught their breath? I can't imagine that black Minnesotans took the purple ones passing the way the rest of the world did. He meant something different for them. Falcon Heights, after all, where Philando drew his final breaths and Diamond recorded it in hopes to avenge him, is a mere 40-minute drive from Paisley Park. Prince, aloof and amusing and untouchable as he was to many, was quite literally accessible to the people in his state of birth. That he was both black and one of the most famous residents there had to have been a particular point of pride for the black Minnesotans who make up a mere 5% of the state population. 
Had Philando and Diamond ever ridden past Paisley Park and marveled over what all must have gone down inside it? I've wondered too about how Prince would have responded to the news of Philando's death, having seen him sing to Baltimore for hours, weeks after Freddie Gray lost consciousness in the use of his limbs alone in the back of a police van. I know Prince would have made his displeasure over Philando's death in Falcon Heights known. That this happened near his own hometown would have only heightened his response to it. I think Prince would have reached out to Diamond, would have asked if there was anything her daughter needed, would have given to them in abundance and in silence. Even a few months later, I do not like to think of how we lost Prince, privately self-medicating, pretending to the world that agony could be built into his aesthetic. No more pirouettes into squats on stilettos, rather Prince in a pared-down piano, rather the myth in his trusty guitar. A painful limp and cane passed off as mere cat daddy swagger. Perhaps Prince would have understood better than anyone Diamond's instinct to pull out her cell phone and record Officer Geronimo Yanez's rehearsal of his post-shooting lines. The show must go on, no matter who it hurts, and almost certainly, the person it will oh hurt God, most is you. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. And sometimes the show is the truest and only real justice to be granted or received. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Prince, like Diamond, knew how and when to perform to expectations. Prince, like Diamond, knew that there will never be a ceiling on how high expectations of one's performance can be set. Consider how the world critiqued his exit. He wasn't supposed to go out like that. I was expecting something more spectacular, extreme old age or blaze of glory. Consider how the world critiqued Diamond's instinct. Why didn't she call 911 with her phone instead of using it to live stream? Consider, in light of how brave they had to be, that neither of their choices deserved such scrutiny. There is no tour de force in the face of death, no right way to handle an untimely exit. We confront it the only way we can, without much choice. the streets, where blood runs freer than the people to whom that blood belongs. God bless everyone brave enough to keep record. Ramsey Orta of Eric Garner. Biden Santana of Walter I'm Scott. Taiwanza Sanders of the Charleston Massacre assailant just before he was killed by him. Abdullah Muflafi of Alton Sterling. Where would we be without evidence? Even when that evidence does not formally, judicially indict, there would be in a way left to look to. We wouldn't realize that the truth had us so thoroughly surrounded. We wouldn't know there is no other way forward but to fight. I can't breathe. 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 I can
The bad news. What? What the good news? I don't know. What is the good news? Uh, you have to say the good news and the bad news. People who want children someday romanticize their unborn. They use them as rhetorical devices, as the captive poetic audiences to whom they voice their worst fears, their most desperate optimism, their apologies for the history preceding them, and for their own contributions to it. We all believe we need someone invisible to answer to, and it's simply easier to imagine accountability to a child we created than to an all-knowing creator. We want to believe we will live long enough to see ourselves become someone's ancestor, so we pre-write an account of the ancestry we hope they will never contest. But when our children cease to be hypothetical, when they are rigid, sturdy limb, encrusted mucus, a firm, tiny foot pressed to our faces in the night, there is nothing flowery about the fight to protect them. Nothing romantic about the gauntlet we face every day in hopes to hold on to their innocence for just a few minutes more. There is no time and no reason left to write to them. We are living out the only record they will remember as true. And yet we write to them anyway, because we want answers as much as they will. We want proof that we sought them right up to the end and so I will say this to my daughter now. I am glad that at age six, your precocity confines itself to countless configurations of miniatures. I am relieved that you intuit how others are feeling, but still have so little idea as to why. I'm grateful you have not begun to inquire after those complicated whys, and that no one in your classes, having overheard and understood better their own parents' compound angst, has encouraged you to. I do not know what will be left for you. From where I stand, I see a lot of what our own black forebears struggled to build crumbling under the weight of what this country has never repaired. Bigotry, poverty, and denial are an apocalyptic confluence, and all three seem to be racing toward their apex now. I hope you find this, and in the event that you can't, I hope it finds you. By the time you read it, I hope you already know who you are. I hope you'll still know what this country is, that you'll still recognize something of its promise. I hope that when you read this, Princess 1999 is softly playing in the distance. And if it is, you'll remember that the world did not end in the decades after he recorded it. That every generation struggles to truly comprehend the limits of its time and that we owe it to whatever future remains to celebrate and repurpose what rises from its rubble. Story, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, like a superhero. A superhero. Yeah, that's why I grow up. In case you're wondering, I was planning to repost this piece before 
the racist slaughter of black people in Buffalo the other week, and before the massacre of young children in Uvalde. Stacia Brown is now senior producer of the Child Proof podcast from 10% Happier. A shout out to Shay Shackelford. He and I worked with Stacia on her piece during our advanced audio workshop here at CDS in 2016, which these days we call Podcast Camp for Grownups 2. Besides the music within Stacia's piece, music here by Goodnight Lucas. More to come in our summer mini season. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Scene on Radio. Our website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.